Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Thank you, Pastor Holly. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? It is a good day to be together. I love it. And uh, please, if you're going to come to this senior Christmas celebration, just mark all your cookies, Kyle, and everything will be okay. I can't wait for that. It's going to be great. (laughs) Well, today we are jumping into the third week of Advent. And uh, I love this third week of Advent as we, because uh, a change happens for us in our progression of Advent and our thoughts and our focuses. And I always look forward to this third week. One of the reasons uh, that you may have already noticed, uh, one of the ways that this changes for us, is that our Advent candle this week stands out. It's a different color from the rest of, of them. We have these three uh, candles that are kind of royal purple, and then we have this one which changes this week to pink. And this color, this third week of Advent, is typically the theme of this week, as you've heard, is rejoicing or joy. And so the color changes in our candle. Actually, the word that's used for this candle is gaudete, which means to rejoice or to have joy, but it's also a word that's translated uh, the color rose. And so the color changes for us. So we see a marked difference here in our progression, in our thoughts, and our reflections in Advent. Something starts to be different this week. Another way that this third week changes for us, which I really love, is that our scripture focus changes. The first two weeks of Advent, the scripture focuses are typically in the Old Testament. And we hear the words of the prophets longing for something to change, longing for the Messiah, longing for the Savior, reflecting on how bad things are and recognition of God. We need you to do something. And so this week it changes from those Old Testament passages. And now what we begin to hear are we move to the New Testament We actually start to hear the stories of Jesus being born. Jesus, here and now, the Savior in our midst. What an incredible reason for joy. So there's a visual shift in this week, and there's a scriptural shift in this week as well. For our Advent journey over the last couple of weeks, we have been focusing on the idea of family. We have been taking kind of a high-level look at the story, the, the family, uh, the story of God's family from the Old Testament to the New Testament, of Jesus's family. And we have been asking questions about how does our family fit into that? How is God working in us? And what does that look like? And it's been a really meaningful journey so far, at least for me, and I hope it is for you as well. Well, as we think about our focus for this week and the idea of family, Jesus' family, like your family and like my family, came from somewhere. In Jesus' family uh, story, the place that Jesus comes is perhaps the most famous small town in all of history, Bethlehem. Now, I love the story of Jesus and and the family story of Bethlehem. It's truly one for the history books. The relationship of Jesus to the town of Bethlehem shows us something really fascinating that's both incredibly encouraging and brings us lots of joy. And that is that, uh, that God loves to work through unexpected places and unsuspecting people to bring enormous and significant change in the world. 
I'm going to say that again because that's going to shape our thoughts here for the next couple of moments. That God loves to work through unexpected places and unsuspecting people to change the world. And this is so encouraging because it has a lot of meaning for you and me and how we participate in the family story of God and what God's doing in the world. So at the time of Jesus' birth, the population of Bethlehem was likely around a thousand people, probably even a little smaller than that. Bethlehem, as we know, was the birthplace of David, the son of Jesse, and that's the family line through which Jesus comes to us, comes to earth. We talked about that in our previous David series and in the first week of our Advent series. Now here's a little fun side note, a little trivia thing about Bethlehem. You could take this and sound incredibly smart about the Bible. Um, The name Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread, which is really kind of cool because in Scripture, Jesus is called the bread of life. So the bread of life comes into the world in a small village named the house of bread. Isn't that cool? I don't know. It's just kind of a cool little trivia. That's fun. Let's share it. (laughs) So I love that Bethlehem is a little small town, and I love that God's family comes through this small town to earth. It helps me relate really well to the story in the context of Jesus because I too, probably like many of you, grew up in a very small town. I grew up in a town called Turner, Oregon, which is just a few miles south of Salem, Oregon, which is the capital of Oregon. In fact, my town of Turner, Oregon was probably about a thousand people. It was yeah, just a little bit more than a thousand people when I was growing up. It was so small that we didn't have anything. We had to drive to Salem for everything. In Turner, we had one stop sign, which we were really proud of. We had one little market. We had one hamburger place called Perky's, which you should never eat at. But we did, and we survived. Who knows? Maybe it's because we just grew up on it. (laughs) We had one elementary school uh, whose mascot was the Turner Tornadoes. I have no idea why. And we had an outdoor pool, which we spent a lot of time at. And then I can remember really well as elementary kids riding our bikes all over our small town. We would just get on our bikes, and I was saying earlier, like 10 o'clock in the morning, we'd just say, bye, Mom and Dad, and we would just go all day. We would come back in time for dinner. The world's very different now, isn't it? But I have such great memories of just riding our bikes all over that little town of Turner. I'm sure people were really annoyed at some of the things that we did. (laughs) Turner was not a town where we got big names or important people uh, to spend time there. In fact, like many small farming communities, in fact, Turner was a small farming community. Our high school was surrounded by four cornfields. So, like, we just couldn't go anywhere unless you wanted to go hang out in the cornfields. Uh, But a lot of the people that I grew up with and went to school with actually still live in Turner. Turner, like Bethlehem, in many ways felt insignificant. Now, what's cool is that God didn't choose a well-known big city with lots of social clout or a long list of attractions to host the coming of the Son of God into the world. If you think about that, this is incredible uh, implications for all of us. Today we talk about, you know, big cities like New York or London or Rome or Los Angeles as destination cities. Places that you want to go, places you want to visit. There's lots of stuff to do there. But when God picked a destination city for his entry into the world, he goes to the most insignificant 
place, an unknown village on the map, Bethlehem, to two very unknown and insignificant people with not a lot of influence, Mary and Joseph. I think one of the most exciting things about the family story of God and the way that God does things is that throughout the entire story of Scripture is that he uses small things and seemingly insignificant people for massive change, which at first doesn't make sense to us. But it's really an incredible source of encouragement and joy because we get to participate in that. Isn't that exciting? We said this a couple of, I think a couple of years ago in some of our Advent Reflections, If we were to kind of map out how God comes into the world, we might say to God, God, you're doing this wrong. (laughs) Like, you should be showing up into centers of influence and affluence. You should come in and say, hey, there's a new way forward. But that's not what God does. He comes to little Bethlehem, to Mary and Joseph, as a baby in a manger. (laughs) Wow. One commentator I read this week wrote this, God chooses the small, and sometimes you and I feel small, that has never hindered God in doing his work. In fact, he actually chooses the small and unknown through which to do his greatest work. How encouraging, what joy. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, this is what it says about this little town of Bethlehem. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, and yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Incredible that God uses all the time unexpected places and unsuspecting people. Another story that we typically read at this time each year is at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. And we find this incredible exchange between the king of that area in that day, King Herod, the guy with all the power, the guy with all the influence, the guy with the palaces, King Herod, and these visitors from the east we know as the Magi. And knowing a little bit more about how small Bethlehem is gives this exchange a little bit more context and maybe some more meaning. In Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. And so Herod called another meeting, called a private meeting with the wise wise men, and, and he learned from them when uh, He learned from them the time when the star first appeared, and he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. So what a fascinating exchange. And we know that at this point, King Herod, he's not, you know, he's, he's actually up to no good trying to find the new king so he could make sure that he could kill this new king and remain in power. But I can imagine that King Herod, after hearing this New king would be born in Bethlehem was saying something like, he'll be born where? What? Are you kidding me? 
this little tiny village? What significance does Bethlehem have? God often chooses the small and the unknown through which to do his greatest work. Praise the Lord. (laughs) I'd like to give you another example of how God does this. Another example from Scripture, which is just an incredible, uh, powerful statement about the kind of people that God chooses to do his work on this world. People that you and I can connect with. We get to be part of this story. Powerful truth that God often chooses out-of-the-way places and unknown people. All part of God's family to do incredibly powerful things to change the world. Now the encouragement, I think, from what we're talking about and this example that I'm about to give is that this can be us too. That God can use us. He can use our stories, our families, our daily activities, even as we go from this place today to continue his incredible saving work in this world to people around us. Do you believe that? (laughs) Here's this example. There's this fascinating comment in the book of Acts that shows us this powerful reality. One teacher I heard uh, talk about uh, this, uh, this chapter called it the most sociologically stunning chapter in the whole Bible. And the chapter I'm referring to is Romans chapter 16. Now in Romans chapter 16, it doesn't often get a lot of preaching attention because it's essentially just a list of greetings that Paul is bringing to people that he knows in Rome. And it goes on for a while. So if you read through it, you kind of get, you know, how sometimes you might read through names that are difficult to, uh, to pronounce and you kind of... After a while, you're just like, okay, you kind of read through all these names. But this is actually a really significant list of Christians, some who we're familiar with and some who we are not. Uh, Some we've heard about and some we haven't. But he says hi, he sends greetings to a lot of these people. Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila, Adronicus and Junia, Mary, Urbanus, Persis, Herodin, Rufus, and so on. So there's lots of people that he says hi to here. He greets so many. There are Roman names, and there are Greek names. There are male names, and there are female names. There are names that are high status and names that are clearly low status. Names of free people and names of people who are slaves. All of these are, are people who Paul wants to connect with as he sends this, his greetings in this chapter. And yet the most astonishing verse in this whole chapter comes near the end in verse 22, and we read this. I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings to as one of the Lord's followers. So who is this person, Tertius? This is, Tertius is the scribe. He's the guy who's hired to write the letter for Paul, right? As Paul starts to dictate. Maybe I'm being playful with the word hired. We don't know if he's hired or not. Tertius likely learned how to read and write early on in his life as a slave. Uh, and we, we don't know if he's still a slave, but we do know that he's a believer and he's here with Paul writing this letter as Paul dictates the words that he wants to have down on paper. And I can imagine this exchange as Paul is talking, he's sending all these greetings, say hi to this person, say hi to this person, and then at some point Paul stops talking. And I wonder if Tertius has got his pen to his paper and he looks over at Paul. And Paul says, Tertius, you're a brother you should say hi. And I, you should greet them all. And I'm wondering if he's thinking, me? Who am I, Paul? I'm just the scribe. I'm just the guy writing what you want me to say. What's his name? 
Tertius. Do you know what it means? It means third. Tertius, meaning third. He had no name. Likely growing up in slavery, he was not considered valuable enough to even get a name. So his name is third. And yet in this moment, he's seen by Paul. In this moment, he's seen by God. And in this moment, he's given a chance to put his name on what will become the Christian scriptures. And so he picks up his pen and he starts to write I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings to, as one of the Lord's followers, Gaius says hello to you. He is my host and also serves as the host of the whole church. Erastus, the city treasurer, sends, his, sends you his greetings, and so does our brother Quartus, or fourth. Now all, now all glory to God who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now, as the prophets foretold, and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere, so that they might believe, they they too might believe and obey him. All glory to the wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Period. (laughs) This message for the Gentiles is for you and me, and it's written by a guy named Third. From Bethlehem to Mary to Joseph to Tertius to Quartus, named Third and Fourth, (coughs) God actually chooses the small and unknown through which to do his greatest work. How encouraging, what joy that this is how God does things. I'm getting excited. I bet Tertius never would have thought that thousands of years later, you and I would be sitting here reading the words that he wrote, listening as he proclaims the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, now made available to all Gentiles, of which we are Gentiles, so that we too might believe. A slave with no name. If you feel small today, if you feel unseen, unheard, unknown, take heart. Because God can and is using you. He can and is using your story for the glory of his kingdom. Amen? God works through those who feel powerless. The truth is all over the story of the coming of Jesus. Sometimes being small and feeling insignificant, it comes with a sense of powerlessness. Excuse me. But God sends full displays of his glory to those who feel small and unseen. He even did it in the skies above Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born. So back to the story in Bethlehem. After Mary gave birth to Jesus... That night in little Bethlehem, after she wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, says that that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding flocks of sheep. And suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. Says that they were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news 
That will be great joy for all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem of all places. <laughs> and you can almost see the shepherds kind of looking at each other in awe and wonder. They're dumbfounded. They're terrified. They start to ask, could this really be happening? We've waited for this for so long. We've prayed for this for so long. We've suffered so much. Is the Savior really here? But why tell us? I bet they ran to find this baby born in Bethlehem. Jesus of Nazareth was born and it was announced as good news to bring great joy to God's people, to all people, the long-awaited hope uh, for, for all of humanity, finally here in the flesh and blood. And the announcement was made not to the rich and the powerful, not to the most important in society, but those shepherds who are often considered outcasts or on the margins of the community, people you really didn't want to hang out with. <laughs> That's who gets the primary message from the angels after Jesus is born. The one who needed hope, needed renewed joy. The ones who would have a deep understanding of what's happening. The joy that God can bring can come from the darkest of fields in the middle of the night to people who are not sitting in the throne rooms of this world. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That's God's MO. That's the way he always does things. He seems to always come in ways we don't understand into people who we don't expect with an incredible promise of faithfulness and joy. One author I read this week wrote this. God steps into the powerlessness we feel and says, what about here and now we remember that I enter, through the, <laughs> I enter the world through the weak, the humble, and the vulnerable. We can all feel small and unseen, lost and unregarded, truly without power or ability to change things at times. And our Father <laughs> speaks to us in this place, that we are a place where heaven meets earth, and we, with the saints, are all God needs to launch a great awakening. Woo! Let's go! <laughs> Do you ever feel small, hidden, out of the way, unseen or misunderstood? If so, the Lord loves to come to and work through the smallest of places the most unseen people, to do the most significant things. Another commentator I read this week wrote this. <clears throat> so today, if you feel less than, inferior, that you can never measure up, look to the greatness of Christ. If you feel vulnerable or small or insignificant, remember that Jesus arose from a place of obscurity. If you feel weak, unsure, and unknown, draw your strength from God. God specializes in lavishing grace upon unworthy people. Remember that God actually chooses the smallest and unknown through which to do his greatest work. Worship team, would you come on back up? That is often the story of the family of God. That is your story. It is my story. It is our story. And I want to end with an encouragement that, uh, the same encouragement that came to the unknown shepherds in the field. As we think about going from here, as we think about what God can and will do, even through the smallest acts of our life, even as you go from here, the way that you treat people, the words that you say, the kindness that you give, God's Spirit empowers us to do transformative work through Him for the kingdom.
So I want to engage, or I want to uh, end with this encouragement that the shepherds got in the field. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has finally been born today in the little town of Bethlehem. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come today and say thank you. Thank you for the way that you work. It's so unlike how we might do it. It makes sense to us for you to come into places of influence and affluence, the throne rooms of this world. But you come as a baby to little Bethlehem, to Mary and Joseph. You gather around yourself a group of unknowns, working in trades all over the place, and usher in the kingdom of heaven and change everything. You invite us into that relationship with you. Empower us through your spirit to do the same. Thank you for your forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for your redemption of who we are. Thank you for your invitation into a family. Thank you that you work in a thousand small ways through all of us sitting in this room to help change the world around us. Go with us, Holy Spirit. Empower us. Help us see things differently. Help us have hearts that just long for you, to long to worship and be connected with you, to see that happen in the lives of other people as well. And so we worship you. We glorify you today and right now. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing this last song together?